A Danair flight is chartering oil workers to the Aberdeen airport when takeoff does not go as planned. What caused this flight to crash while trying to take off? Welcome back to the Heart Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. We have Heather. Hello. Again. <laughs> <laughs> microphone was nowhere near Bad ready. In the microphone. <laughs> That's all right. Heather hath returned. Hath returned. This is the third episode Heather's been on. Yes. And like, well. this is like the most we've had consistent like guest people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Emily's been on a few, and Kara's been on a few, and Caitlin's been on a few, but like you and Kate, Caitlin are now like. It's because I'm needy and I'm always around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you also like air crashes, so. That's true. I mean, if you didn't like it, I would assume you just wouldn't show up, so. All right, friendos, we do have a new patron to thank. Fiona. Fiona. Thank you, Fiona. Thanks. Thanks, Fiona. Let me double check and make sure there's nobody else. (laughs) I don't think so. No, just Fiona. Okay. Thanks. But thank you so much. We appreciate your patronage. If you came back, uh, thank you. Just a quick reminder, and I checked this this like yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's quite a few people that their cards have been declined, and your card has been declined multiple months in a row. Yeah, and you probably have figured that out by now because you're not yes. getting our emails or anything. So if you're a patron and you haven't been getting emails from Patreon, uh, it might be because your card declined, and you need to look at that. It could be that you're Needs sometimes updating. Well, sometimes it's not even that because it's happened to me before with me and another podcast's Patreon where it just didn't go through i had to like Um, re-put in my card number same card (laughs) but yeah it was weird so you might if you haven't been getting our emails or anything you might want to take a look at that just be aware also you could get your ducks we promise we're sending stuff out we figured out the problem with the stupid website but we haven't been able to fix it yet because Paige has the podcast card so (laughs) uh we'll, we'll figure it out we'll get you guys your merch and stuff we're really sorry it was like it's been a hectic couple of months with page like traveling and then us also having other stuff to do we haven't really quite like got together to figure it out yeah so we'll figure it out you'll get your stuff we're sorry we're working on it also shout out to Paige for being the real mvp i i came home from my dad's and there was a giant edible arrangement on my doorstep for my birthday Cute. so nice that's so nice cute so thank you Paige. i know i already told you thank you but thank you Paige is yes. the best all right I don't know if there's any more housekeeping. Nothing crazy. All the usual stuff. Okay. Send I had, stories. I had, I had a birthday. Oh, Happy yeah, birthday! Birthday was legit yesterday. For Which is we why we recorded one day late. God, sorry. No, it's all right. We were all at her mom's house till like 10 o'clock last night. Mm-hmm. So I fell asleep. Which is why Heather's here. Because <laughs> yeah. Heather just spent the night. And that's okay. All right. I think that's it for all the that stuff. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Dan Air Flight 0034. Thank you once again to Helen for recommending this. Yes. Yeah, we got one more Helen recommendation after this, by the way. Yes, they I are. Know, cause we I on the streak. The, I just did the newsletter. Um, so no, we have two more. Oh. Is it two more from this yes. one? Yes. Jesus okay. Christ. Okay. We yeah. on the Helen streak. We on the Helen streak. Two months so. after this, and then that's it. And then, oh, nope, I take that back. There's three more. In a row? Yes. Are you sure? The third one is Helen and Matt. Oh, well, at least there's okay. another person. All right. Well, <laughs> actually, Helen. there's someone else that we need to put on that list too, because I know what that one is. We'll do that later. Okay. 
And then after that is Bob. All right. Bob. From the same side of the pond. This accident occurred on July 31st of 1979. This was a, are you ready for this? No. <laughs> British Aerospace Hawker Sidley HS748-105 Series 1. What? I think we've talked about one of those. Before, <laughs> <laughs> I would be amazed if you remembered. <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think I remember it being so dumb. Not dumb. But a weird aircraft enough to be like, mm -hmm. why? It might have been the other Dan Air crash we covered. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, Dan Air has some luck. very notable <laughs> accidents in history. Dan Air was, unfortunately, they were quite a sizable airline, actually, in the UK, but they had some issues. When did we previously cover Dan Air? I, it was a long time ago. Yeah. I it was. That. It was a Hawker Sidley HS748-108 Series 2A. See, that's a different one. But saying it's a, it's a Hawker Sidley though, yes, like, and that was also that was Dan Air Flight two four zero episode one hundred three. Unbelievably similar airplanes, just some variances in horsepowerage, yeah, horsepowerage and such. So the seven four eight for those of you that need a recap is a regional style airliner. It's a twin turboprop, as are many things. It's not, it's very similar in size to like a Convair five eighty, but maybe slightly larger. I think I looked at it and it reminded me of a Boeing 707. No, it's much different. Can can you put it in modern people terms? It's very closely related to a Saab 340 in terms okay. of size and... Oh, this is the wrong one. Sorry. There was another yes. one I looked at that's a future episode that looks like a... Yes. This is not... Miranda no. did the newsletter. Can you tell? Yes. Yes. I did. Now this, yes, this Dan Air is... No, this Dan Air is just a, a twin turboprop regional carrier. Slow is this wing. the ugly one? It yes. looks a little ugly. Yeah, it's kind of ugly. It's kind of ugly. Yeah. There's nothing particularly special about this airplane other than it's an airplane. <laughs> it carries people. That's pretty much it. It flies in the sky. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Well, eh. find out. <laughs> uh, Heather heard some uh, things I was talking about today. So she, she, she's, in the, she's in the know. She's in the know. <laughs> <laughs> this one has the tail number Golf-Bravo Echo Kilo Foxtrot. This was a charter flight. Now, this is a little complicated to explain. But it's a charter flight for an oil company. Dan Air actually bought a bunch of these Hawker Sidleys specifically for operations for this company as charters between Sumberg and Aberdeen and the other places within the UK that they operate. Now, the oil company, oh, I'm going to have to pull this up because I could try to read this to you and I'm probably still going to butcher it. The oil company in specific was Yacimientos Petroliferos Fiscales. What language is that? Yeah. That is Spanish. Because this is an Argentinian company operating the oil refineries in the UK that are state-owned by Argentina. What? In Danair was their contracted airline to move them around, and Danair specifically leased or bought a bunch of these Hawker Sidleys just for this. Well, that sounds sticky. It was one of seven Hawker Sidleys that they had acquired just for YPF, is the short for the company's name, uh, to support their work in the North Sea. They had bought them the year before. Hello, I'm Argentinian, but I'm working in the North Sea. Yeah. As most oil workers do. It turns out, yeah. There's I mean, big oil rigs out there. And, and 
You it's know, not the first time we've talked about them. No, it is not, turns out. The other one, though, we talked about was a helicopter crash. Right. The other two we talked about were yeah, helicopter crashes. crashes. Were they now, both to oil rigs, though? Yes. Yes. Oh. <laughs> In the been North Sea. Yeah. It's been a while. So this is, yeah, I'm not going to get on the rant, but, you know, oil, oil refineries and oil rigs and stuff and oil companies. I mean, if it was specific at all, I mean, if you understand oil companies at all, you understand how messed up it all is and how this is very normal, unfortunately, even today. Companies just own outright the oil rigs and operate them on behalf of other countries in other countries. Yeah. Turns out. Turns out. I don't have names for the two crew members. Okay. There were two crew members. Two flight crew members. There was a captain. He was 37 years old. He was male. He had 6,487 hours total, of which 4,403 hours were on the Hawker Sidley. So they definitely brought him in as a Hawker Sidley pilot, being that they only had these for, like, the year prior. That doesn't necessarily mean he might not have operated for Dan Air previously, but they definitely brought him in as a Hawker Sidley pilot. He had a lot of experience on them. The first officer was a 51-year-old male who had 4,563 hours total, of which 57 were on the Hawker Sidley. I see your face, but I mean, at the same time, so... Okay, the captain is unbelievably experienced on the airplane. Okay, I realize that, but we've had issues with that before, and yes. I also realize that you can't put two un- unexperienced crew members together, and I understand there's only one way to, like, get experience, you have to yes. be with an unexperienced <laughs> crew member, but, like, that doesn't give me, like, the, the funny The, the warm and fu- warm like, fuzzies? <laughs> yeah, no. I understand it, that. It makes me a little, eh, That said. That doesn't mean it has anything no. to do with the crew. Right. Not saying that. I'm just saying, for previous experience... Yes. It does not give me the warm, the fuzzy feeling. Hours don't matter much here. Nope. I'll put it that way. The 57 hours, honestly, is it's while it's very low, considerably, this pilot's still trained on the Yeah, airplane. he still has 4,000 hours total. So yeah. I'm not, like, he's, too worried about it, but... Yeah, and 57 is still, I mean, he he's not in training on this airplane anymore. He's had his experience by this point. He knows at least well enough. So, like I said, the aircraft was on a series of charter flights to move employees from Sumberg to Aberdeen, for the oil company, YPF. The aircraft and crew had flown to Sumberg from Aberdeen uneventfully earlier in the day. The airplane and crew then remained there in Aberdeen for almost seven hours Wow! before flying the return leg. It's not so, a very long return leg, Can you by the tell way. me where those places are exactly? Because I don't quite know where those places are. Are they both in the UK? Yes, they're in northern UK. Okay. Yep, near the North Sea. There's nothing particularly special about this flight. It's pretty short, but they still have to, to move a lot of employees yeah, where, pretty quickly. Where they're going to and from. But if mm-hmm. they're both in northern UK, I guess I can understand where that is. Yeah. So, yeah. For this flight, this return leg, there were 44 male passengers joining wow. the three crew, leaving just one female on board, by the way, which was the cabin crew, the one cabin crew all member. oil workers. Yeah. Yes, they're all oil workers and... The one cabin crew, which was referred to in the report over and over and over again as, as the stewardess, stewardess. because <gasps> that, as was the era, doesn't mean I have to like it. No. It's incredibly sexist and misogynistic, but whatever. <laughs> We're over it. I know we don't call them that anymore. It's yep. still misogynistic. No, but there are still a bunch of misogynistic, unnecessary requirements. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen the informational video about being a flight attendant for Singapore Airlines. But you have to like do your makeup a very particular way or you're out of the program. Your bun has to be put up a certain way and it can only be a certain size or you're out of the program. That's how some Asian mm-hmm. 
uh, airlines are as well. Yeah, I mean, they have Singapore to go through, like, it's like model level. It's insane. Oh, yeah. Singapore, yeah. Emirates, stupid. all those things. Yeah, you ha- you have to basically be a model. To How well you do your coal eyeliner does not affect your ability to provide safety services. Right. God forbid you end up in an accident. I didn't realize stewardess wasn't no. considered a appropriate, appropriate to, term. Not, not anymore. Any, not anymore, but like in because general. Because if you want to be most professional and appropriate, it's cabin crew. Yeah. yeah. Flight attendant's still passable, and that's what most people... That's what I always say. say, Flight attendant and cabin crew. Which is fine, but the reason why flight attendant and stewardess are both being phased out, not just sexist connotations, but also because their job is so much more than that. Yeah. Cabin crew really does connotate that they are a crew who focus on the cabin portion, not just on doing like beverage service, but they're truly there for your safety. Yeah. That is their job. That is their number one job before everything else. Oh, yeah. So, that. Anyways, moving on. <laughs> 3.48 p.m., the aircraft engines were started, and they began taxiing to the runway. The weather conditions were low clouds and rain, but decent visibility and nothing else notable. Et voila, it's the UK. It's the UK. What a surprise. Uh, the flight taxied to a holding point, Holding Point India specifically, which was the intersection of a closed runway and runway 15-33. So, they need to cross the middle of this other runway but they're also sitting on an old closed runway, which is now a taxiway. The single cabin crew member gave the company standard safety briefing using a megaphone because the PA system wasn't working. Already just not great. Mm-hmm. It's not a very big airplane, to be fair. Yeah, but so, to have something like the PA system already not work yeah, is like, really? <laughs> really? Yeah. That t- Okay, so sorry. I, I don't mean to interrupt you. but No, it's fine. Initially, what that says to me is, we don't care enough to take care of the airplane to do common maintenance, like make sure the PA system works. No, not necessarily. Because of the size of the aircraft, it's not on the minimum equipment list. So, to be spe- I'm not saying it is, but right. it's just one of those things where, I don't know, we've covered like th- stuff like this before with charter airplanes, where yeah. they don't take as good care of the airplanes as they do with the other. Unfortunately true. But specifically, what was said about the PA is that it... It wasn't necessarily that it wasn't working at all, but apparently it was screeching, quote-unquote. Okay. So, just heavily unpleasant to use. So, they were using... At least they had a megaphone, so that... Yes, they were using a megaphone. (laughs) And it's also the size of aircraft where you can get away with that. You could probably yell at all the passengers, too. It's not very big. It's not that big of an airplane. It's really not. Anyways. The aircraft remained at the holding point for six minutes while other aircraft movements occurred around them. 3.57 3.57 p.m., once the aircraft was cleared to taxi again, they were instructed to enter and backtrack for takeoff on runway 09. So a totally different runway, another runway altogether. So they crossed the one runway, went over, and then they did a backtrack down the runway to turn around and then take off on 09. Right. While backtracking, the air traffic controller provided the flight with their IFR flight plan clearance, or in route clearance, it was called at the time. The first officer read back the clearance correctly. The aircraft then turned around and lined up for takeoff. It all happens fast from here. 3.59 p.m., the air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff, and the first officer acknowledged. The throttles were advanced to full throttle while the brakes were held, so they were going to full throttle while holding the brakes to get as much power as possible before they released the brakes to get on the roll. This is the correct thing to do. For this airport. This is not necessarily abnormal. This is also not normal procedures, as you've probably been on many flights before. Usually they just roll They just yeah. roll as they increase throttle. I'm guessing this is a little short runway. Yeah, relatively. Shorter. Yes. 
Yeah. They needed to get speed going initially so mm-hmm. they could take off before the, you know, end of the runway. Mm-hmm. That's my yep. assumption. Yep. Pretty much. Anyways, 4 p.m., pretty much on the dot. Once at full power, the brakes were released, and they began their takeoff roll. The aircraft accelerated and reached V1 at 92 knots, then VR, or rotate, rotate speed, 99 knots. The aircraft continued accelerating, however, it quickly became apparent that the aircraft wasn't rotating or becoming airborne. It reached a max speed of 113 knots, but did not become airborne. Five seconds after reaching rotation speed, and after passing the intersection of the closed runway with the runway they were on, the aircraft began slowing down. The aircraft began veering to the left just before overrunning into the grass. Before striking a quote-unquote step that was 40 centimeters high at the edge of the airfield perimeter road, which caused a partial collapse of the landing gear, after which the aircraft crossed that road in a left-wing low and nose-up attitude before crossing the seawall and coming to rest on the other side in the sea, 50 meters past the shoreline. So they had some speed, still. Emergency services managed to arrive within two minutes to the road adjacent to the crash, the perimeter road. Within a minute of their arrival, however, the aircraft sunk. So within three minutes... How deep was where they were? Ten meters. To put in perspective, the rear end of the fuselage didn't sink. Okay. But the front end, it went nose in immediately. Probably because there was a big hole where it sheared the landing gear. Yeah, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. So it sunk nose first within three minutes of hitting the water. Small boats and helicopters were used in the rescue efforts. Some passengers managed to swim to shore. 50 meters is a pretty long swim, to be honest, though. I if mean, you're not a, like a... If avid... you thought you were going to die, though, the adrenaline would Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably it. kick in and carry you to shore. Don't get me wrong. And, I mean, you probably use the tide a little bit, this and that. But 50 meters, like, I mean, for a normal swimmer, that's a pretty long distance that's to have a, to swim. That's a long distance, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty far. In all, 29 passengers and the one cabin crew member survived. Two of said passengers were seriously injured, and the rest had minor to no injuries. Oh. So the the crew didn't die? Fifteen, well, fifteen passengers oh. and the two flight crew did. Oh, okay. Oh. They did not survive the accident. Oh. They did not survive the accident because they drowned in the quickly sinking airplane. Oh, <laughs> Damn. Yeah. They couldn't, like, unbuckle and get out? Or were they unconscious, or...? Not sure. Okay. That's about as much as they clarified. I feel like the the, the first officer and the captain, that probably was the case, depending on how hard they hit. Mm-hmm. They made a point that I didn't, which was, and I didn't because I didn't want it to foreshadow, but they made a point in the history of flight saying that the cabin crew had in fact shown them how to use their life vests and yada, yada, yada. I was going to ask about the life vest thing. What they, not to foreshadow the findings, but what they do talk about in the findings is relocating the location of the life vests on this airplane. I don't know why. I don't have clarification on why. Where were they? Good question. That you were like, oh, they're not. Now I regret not reading that part of the analysis because, oh boy, it's juicy. I'm going to have to skim it later and just paraphrase it. Okay. Okay, so, uh, Christy, what, what? What, what happened? So what had happened was... What you see, happened? what had happened was... What had happened was I didn't open my... Why mouth. the hell did the plane not get off the ground? Yeah, this plane never flew. So that is a very good question. <laughs> I'm sure you left some stuff out, so I wouldn't be able to guess why I didn't. Actually, I didn't not leave much... Not really, actually. I actually didn't leave much out from the story. Not at all, actually. In this case, this is about what they wrote. Really? The only thing I left out was the, the bit about the... Life jackets? Life jackets, just because I didn't want to foreshadow how many people perished and why. But... Actually, I didn't leave anything else out. 
Oh, okay. Well, yeah, no, no. Then, there's then what happened? The story was only a page and a half, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> so this investigation was performed by the AAIB. How'd you guess? <laughs> and they wrote like, it literally the last like five episodes. That's an exaggeration. Again, like two or guess? three. Okay, this report was submitted on May 12th, 1981 to the Right Honorable John Biffin, MP, the Secretary of State for Trade. Lord. Okay. What a weird thing to, like, okay. I'm pretty sure the last one I read said Secretary of State for Transport. Mm -hmm. Yes. So. Makes more sense. But this is Charter for Oil, so I don't know if that's. This was also 1979, and the other one was in the 80s. It still falls somewhere in between. Anyway. In any case, why sir, I have the honor to submit the report by Mr. C.C. Allen. Same dude as the yes. last one we talked about. Same dude. <laughs> Same dude. <laughs> An inspector of accidents on the circumstances of the accident to BAE Hawker Sidley 748 Golf Bravo Echo Kilo Foxtrot, which occurred at Sunberg Airport, Shetland Islands on July 31st, 1979. I have the honor to be, sir, your <laughs> obedient <laughs> servant, W.H. Tench. That one actually kind of worked. Anyway. Yeah. They were able to recover the flight data recorder, which was undamaged and able to be read out. Pretty remarkable, to be honest, for the time and for the aircraft. Well, what I mean... A, the... what, a, what about the CVR? However. Oh, Aircraft. <laughs> was not equipped with. Nor was it required to be equipped Stop! with. <laughs> what? It's, oh. a, it's a transport aircraft. 1978, and it's a small airplane. 79. Yeah, so 1979. <laughs> 1979, and it's a small airplane. I still feel like 1979, they guess, still guess, were able to have... Guess what investigators have to say in section 2.7 of the analysis. No. They should have a CVR, <laughs> but a concept. Oh this my one, god. On this it. one, it wasn't even uh, installed appropriately. So. Cool. <laughs> Heather's gone down a rabbit hole. I have gone down a rabbit hole, sorry. <laughs> Evidence from eyewitness accounts indicated that the takeoff was abandoned well after V1 when the flight should have continued and climb out should have commenced. But why? So why didn't it? Investigators took a look at the takeoff run on the FDR and found that the first 28 and a half seconds of the takeoff roll were fairly normal. No malfunctions of anything. There was no evidence of fire, smoke, crew incapacitation. What was concerning was the distinct absence of any rotation. Yeah, like why, why didn't they just ro rotate? So investigators outlined several instances that would cause problems with rotation, all of which ha are in regards to the elevators. Yeah, I was going to say something wrong with the elevators. One. The elevator trim may have been left in the nose-down setting from the previous flight. This was only a suspicion briefly, as a flight test showed that even if this were to be the case, the pilot could have easily exerted the required force to counteract the trim with a single hand. Oh, well, that that's no. This is the inside of an HS-748 by Danair. By okay. So I mean, see. there's still quite a, a lot of seats. Yeah, and but I mean, you can yell from front to back for sure. Yeah. It's not a big airplane. No. I've been in planes about that size or smaller where they haven't even used the intercom for the oh, safety yeah. briefing. I have been in tiny and I have been in very large. <laughs> so circumstance number two, maybe a cable or pulley in the elevator control system snapped. A thorough yeah. examination of the wreckage showed this was not the case. Oh, I was like, I forgot that they ran by cables back then. <laughs> yeah. There are not still quite a few cable driven airplanes, but mostly very small. Three, maybe the elevator control system was jammed by foreign object damage. This was not found in the wreckage either, and such a situation also would have required the crew to have not carried out the full and free check, that check that they had full and free control of the elevators. You have all seen Brendan do a full and free control check. Yeah. You, you, you move the control column, and it moves. Yeah. That, that's it. Yeah. That's the whole check. Yeah. It is. 
Ta-da. Ta-da. They still do this so, to this day. So if that had happened, that wouldn't have worked. Four, the crew didn't move the gust lock lever out of the on detent and didn't carry out the full and free check. This absolutely cannot have been the case based off of the takeoff roll, as there is a safety built in such that takeoff roll power cannot be set on the throttle while the gust lock lever is in the on position. Now, uh... Put a pin in that. What the hell do you, is a gust lock lever? I'm guessing it has something to do with wind. Yeah. Basically. So the, the airplane doesn't get... So, so you know when we land with Brendan and he puts a pin... In the control column? Yeah. So it doesn't move? Yeah. That's a gust lock. That's a form of a gust lock. Yeah. That is a a specific, that's a pin, gust lock pin. Different airplanes have different versions of gust locks depending on the size of the airplane, whether they be like literally a manual pin in place or they be a lever. It helps your plane to not move in a gust on the ground when it's parked. That's it. What a concept. Uh, Okay. On the Hawker Sidley, it was a lever. But investigation into the gust lock lever brought about some possibilities that could have led to the events that transpired. Where is this lever and how does it work? Well, this lever is on the center console directly next to the first officer. When the lever is in the fully back detent pulled towards you, the gust locks are engaged. Pretty simple. To disengage the gust lock, you have to pull the lever out, like out of the console almost, push it forward, and then push it back into the console into the fully forward detent. Okay. And this thus, is, the gust lock is disengaged. This is not dissimilar to how most levers in the cockpit work so that they don't get bumped. Even throttles these days have detents, but like your flaps, you lift, you move, you drop. Yeah. Same thing with the gear. You pull, you drop, you lock it in place, or up. Same thing. I'm assuming this is also a part of a some sort of checklist, I would hope? Yes. yes. Okay. So, there are notches in the metal gate plate for each detent. Like little notches so you know where to put the... Right. Lever. Yeah. yeah. And there's a bar on the shaft of the lever that fits into the detent slots. That bar is called the gate stop strip. You can tell by the fact that I'm defining things that this is probably the problem. <laughs> when examining the center console from the wreckage, investigators found that it was possible to pull up to move the lever out of the rear detent, and if you pushed it down before getting to the fore detent, it would actually push down into the gate plate and look like it was in place without actually being in the fore detent. Huh? I know. So, you know how you have to pull it out of the detent, push it, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. stick it back in the console? Yeah, 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 yeah. You could p- stick it back in the console before it was in the detent. What? So it would drop, but not all the way in, basically. No, it would go all the way in, just not in a detent. Right. And it just could do that? Yes. How the hell does that work, you might ask? Well, without... <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I'm thinking. Without getting into dimensions and tolerances and That's not what my notes said. And such is what my notes said. (laughs) Just the right amount of wear and tear on the gate plate and just the right amount of wear and tear on the gate stop strip allowed the lever to be pushed down and to look like the gust lock was off. And because this part didn't have any wear inspection requirements, it went unnoticed. Okay, but... All right, here's my question. Hold on. I know you're going to get into it. I'm sorry. But here's my question. You said there was a safety... You're several questions you ahead of me. Just, just, just that there was a can, safety. Can, yes, can you there is. can you have the question that's written in my notes instead? <laughs> so I don't know what question you want me to ask. Are the gust locks engaged or disengaged when the lever's between detents? My guess would be it's engaged until it's the answer not is yes. The answer is wait, what? What do you mean yes? <laughs> it's both. <laughs> How can it be both? So through a series of tests, investigators determined that the gust lock would remain engaged until the lever was moved at least 75% of the distance between the two detents. What the fuck? So I, I need you to picture this lever in your head. So you're moving it 
from back to forward. If you move it at least 75% of the way, the gust locks disengage. So in a way, it's like being in between, like, drive and... Yeah. If you're ever, yeah, if you're ever, like, <laughs> in between... So say your two things were park and drive, right? Yeah. You're moving from your hands in the back, you're in park. If you move at least 75% of the way to drive, the gust locks disengage. We're good. We're in the clear. That doesn't mean you're in drive. In this situation. <laughs> in this situation, it does. <laughs> if you're within that 25% remaining, the gust lock would disengage. But what about that safety feature Miranda just asked about that prevents a throttle from being moved to takeoff? Yeah. When does that take effect? Yeah. It takes effect for 55% of the distance between detents. So, if the lever is between 55 and 75% of the distance between the detents, with 100% being in the forward detent, the gust locks would remain engaged and would prevent elevator movement and the throttles could be moved to takeoff. Who thought that up? Who they, they didn't think they didn't think this would ever be a problem. Okay, but we've covered this before where it's like, why can't you just do zero or a hundred? What is this bullshit? Well, 75%, I mean, 55%. It, it wasn't designed that way, right? Like they, they had to, to test be, all that. It was designed to be in either one or the other, but it, there was no thought of what happens if it's in between. What happens if they just leave it halfway? Engineers should be thinking of yeah. this stuff. <laughs> <That's my point. laughs> They I'm literally like, have degrees to think of this stuff. Their job is to think of like, well, what if this happens? Well, they thought of the first 25%. Their job and the is last to think of the what is. And the last 55. There's just a 20% gap in the middle. They were like, ah! that seems really highly unlikely. Unless well, you're on this what? plane. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden they're like statistics. And then everyone's like, as soon as you think, oh, this is highly unlikely. The statistics say it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. Pretty so much. Like, now a question I'm surprised no one has had. How did the crew not notice it wasn't in the detent? Well, you said it could look like it's in the detent. So the lever seemed to be down. It was not quote unquote standing proudly, as the report said. Okay. But why didn't they notice it wasn't in the detents? Normally you can see detents and be like, oh, it's mm. not in the slot. Well, yeah. the slots were covered with a rubber seal. Why the f were they covered okay. with a rubber seal? I'm not going to even try to explain this. Do you still have that report pulled up, Heather? Yes. I also have the report. Can, can, you, can you go to the images of the actual levers? It's underneath the image you were looking at. Yeah. It's like there's rubber around the track. That one? That's the gust lock lever. You see the rubber seal around the... Oh, so you can't see because the rubber's in the way. What the... Okay. Here, all right. Listen. Listen, Linda. Okay? Listen. For the throttles, I understand doing that. But when there's not an actual detent you can see, how the hell are you supposed to know if it's in a detent It's supposed to just go into the detent. It helps if you have the thing like you have on your car, the spindle. The Prindle? <laughs> the Prindle? <laughs> if you know that reference, you can be my you. best friend. Prindle. Like, like the Prindle, where they have like the, the cutouts yeah. that you have to shift yeah. into, like physically look at it. Like, why can't they do that? Because it's on and off, allegedly. But it's not, though. But you just if told only, me it's not. If only it were that simple. <laughs> so, there's one more question I am once again surprised no one has had. What about that full and free check? Well, I'm guessing because the gust lock wasn't on, like, it, it was, it was disengaged, on. right? Okay, so if the gust locks were activated, the elevator shouldn't have moved. Therefore, the full and free check should have failed. Right. Right? Right. Right. In right! <laughs> <laughs> In testing, investigators found that if the gust lock lever was moved forward 70% of the way in that sweet spot range and the full and free check was performed in test order, it would frequently but not always result in full range of motion in the controls with the final steps of the check actually causing the gust lock to re-engage. 
and the crew wouldn't notice they couldn't pull their control column back until they were ready to rotate and it was way too late. Uh-huh. I don't know. Where? What safety? I feel like... <laughs> like, there was one safety and they were like, that's it. That's all we need. And I feel like there's at least three or four more things they should have done to make sure that this didn't happen. You know, by this point, the airplane had been operating for like 23 years. Okay, listen, Nicholas, I understand. Wow, she didn't say listen. So by this point, the engineers didn't care. Yeah. (laughs) Dies because of it. And then people look at the company and go, why the hell didn't you think of this? Because for 23 years, it wasn't a problem. Well, guess what? It was a problem. (laughs) It was. You always have to think about that, like, one in a billionth chance that it's going to happen. Well, by then, the airplanes... What happens if that happens? By then, the airplanes are on the way out. Realistically, for engineers, we don't think about one in a billion we think I, I was it was an exact I know, but I'm just I'm just saying one and in a billion very is- slight chance that that could happen. <laughs> I'm surprised no one was like, maybe we should just test it to make sure. And no one was like, it took 23 years for it to fail. Okay, and it took very one. specific wear and tear for it to happen. Okay, more specifically actually, it took 18 years, sorry. 18 years. God. Sorry. Wanted to be more specific. 18 years for them to figure this out. I figured out where the life jackets were. Where are the life jackets? They were pouches on the seat bottoms which is pretty okay. normal that's where they are uh, yeah okay so it says most of the passengers weren't wearing life jackets because the seat pitch was so narrow that they couldn't reach back around far oh. enough to remove them from <laughs> they, their they just couldn't get to them, them because it was just too crammed, <laughs> too crammed. That, that sounds like a frontier issue or a spirit issue yeah right yeah. well that's why they're all the way at the front of the seat and you actually yeah. you can literally reach them just by reaching your hand between yeah. your legs and touching the bottom of the seat you know who also has that issue united Mm-hmm. Their economy class mm-hmm. is so tight. It is. I was trying to plug in a plug one time. To yeah, it's pain. I can't. You gotta reach be. A, down you gotta be a contortionist. Yeah. Yoga. And I'm small. I can't imagine people bigger than me trying mm-hmm. to do that. Exactly. You look confused. I'm gonna read the sentence, and I'm very confused. The impact with the sea caused the aircraft to break its back. What? <laughs> The airplane snapped. <laughs> oh my god, that is the weirdest way to... Another reason it also flooded. Yes, and, and the left wing to detach, with the result that it started to sink by the nose almost immediately. No, really. Three minutes later, it was underwater. As the emergency exits were open, more water poured into the sinking aircraft. Oh, really? <laughs> Fortunately, appears all on board were properly strapped in and no one was incapacitated by the crash. Good news. However, the cabin filled with water very quickly, assuming a steep nose-down attitude, and there was a rush for the emergency exits, verging on panic. Oh, God. People couldn't get out. The stewardess's behavior in attempting to calm the passengers and subsequently to marshal a number of them out of the rear door was exemplary and almost certainly helped to reduce the number of casualties. Good job! You did your job! They actually had nothing she bad did to say. Her job. They had nothing bad to say about her. Nothing. The fact that the passengers were all comparatively young, fit, and used to the environment also increased their chances of survival. Does she live? Yes. Yes. Okay. As might be expected under these circumstances, passengers nearest to the emergency exits were, in general, the most successful in escaping. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Of course. It seems improbable that the lack of a full demonstration of the donning and of the operation of life jackets in the absence of individual safety leaflets did not affect the survival prospects of the seasoned passengers. So not everybody had like a, a, a like a safety, safety information card. card. Yeah. Safety. But it says that they were what, what was the word I just used? Seasoned passengers. So they've probably flown on this plane numerous times. They've gotten that safety well, briefing. It was a, a chartered plane for the you know yes. employees. So yes. 
I just find it interesting that not everybody had a safety information card. However, investigators point out that it would seem prudent that on all public transport flights, taking off or landing directly over water, complete life jacket demonstration should be given and individual safety leaflets provided. Yes, that is the standard. Now. Investigators disclosed that the first problem was due partly to the fact that hand luggage placed under the seat in some cases impeded access to the life jacket stowages, but was mainly due to the positioning and method of attachment of the stowage. The stowages were positioned well back under the seats, and the method of attachment of each pouch was such that two hands were often needed to open it and extract the jacket. Furthermore, the seat pitch in the accident aircraft was sufficiently close to make it extremely difficult to reach the stowage properly without tipping forward the back of the seat in the row ahead. In the rush to evacuate the aircraft and the short time available, this process was often impossible. Yeah, I mean, when you're panicking, and let's say you're at the front of that airplane, right, and it's filling with water, and mm-hmm. you can't reach your, your life jacket, yeah, yeah, yeah. The post-accident investigation of the adult life jackets themselves revealed no specific indication as to why several failed to inflate. Oh, that's horrifying. Yep. The most probable explanation is considered to be that in the rush to inflate them and escape, passengers did not pull down firmly and sharply enough on the inflation toggle, a procedure which is, um, essential. It is of note that although a number of passengers reported that they had inflated their life jackets before leaving the aircraft, a practice never to be recommended in normal ditching circumstances. Nope. Because you can drown. On this occasion, they were fortunate in having no apparent difficulty in escaping. That's fortunate. Isn't it? Well, it didn't completely flood with water, though. Part of the plane was out of the water, which is part of the reason that that didn't happen. But if the plane was fully in water, they would have been. Yeah. Yep. You should check out our episode on Ethiopian air- the Ethiopian uh, hijacking on that. They would have just been yep. forced to the top of the plane. I'm just skimming through the rest of the analysis. Although well-intentioned, very well-intentioned, the presence of two non-SAR helicopters caused considerable difficulty to survivors swimming in the rough seas on account of downwash. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So maybe don't do that. I mean, I understand why you think that's a good idea. But... Were there no rafts? Nope. Small airplane. Yeah, okay, but not like the smallest of airplanes, though. No. Like, it can hold up to 44 passengers. I would expect it could at least hold a raft. And mm. furthermore, survivors commented that on reaching the shoreline, they had great difficulty in climbing over the protruding concrete blocks that formed the wave breakers. Yeah, the seawall. Yeah. Same seawall that they jumped over. Yeah. <laughs> so that sucks. Yeah. And last but not least, section 2.7. You might have noticed I mentioned that. Quote, Had a CVR been fitted to the accident aircraft, the inquiry would have been much assisted. Oh, really? End quote. Yeah, because they could have figured out what actually happened. <laughs> like, they have an idea, but yeah. they're like, but, 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 but why? Right. You know what's crazy? I always think about what I would do in these situations if I had Nico with me. Uh-huh. Pray he swims. I mean, he's, he's a goldie. He can swim. Yeah, but like... Mm-hmm. Overall, this is still very traumatic, and yes. panicking people still got to get them out of the plane. I've read somewhere, I don't know if it was for commercial airlines, but I do believe it is your responsibility as a service dog handler to provide a life jacket. Yeah. So, something to consider. Well, I would honestly probably end up holding on to him. Mm-hmm. So he should probably have a life jacket. <laughs> With what space? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, this... Yes, I I understand the raft thing, and I understand your point. The raft, the thing with the raft, very small airplane, mind you. It's not very small, though. It's smaller than a normal jet airliner, I will agree with you. But it's not as small. Like, if this was a Saab, Mm -hmm. like a smaller Saab, or even like a Metroliner or something that's meant to take passengers, but it doesn't have a lot of space, I get it. But this can hold almost 50 passengers inside of it. But a Saab also doesn't have them. Neither does... And a Saab actually holds just about as many people. And Depends on the Saab. <laughs> yes. But even then, 
like most of these aircraft you're talking about just don't have them. Anything smaller than like a CRJ, probably not going to have it. Just saying, it would be a good practice to have at least one. Yes, well, they can't because of weight. So they didn't, and they didn't design it with it. They pretty much expect you're going to get out. What they did in place of that is they designed a very large door for the size of airplane it is. Which then lets in water. Yes, but you're supposed to be able to just get out, use your life vest, and swim. And too bad, you're going to end up just swimming for a while, sitting in your vest. Well, as long as you have a vest, it's not that bad. But you don't yeah, except have it's a cold. vest. It's cold. Well, yes. <laughs> but if you don't have a vest, it's significantly harder. Because yes. even though it's cold, yes. you could float Agreed. with a vest and Agreed. rest. Yes. Agreed. But most airplanes of a small size will not have them to this day. So this is stupid. They don't have inflatable life jackets for dogs? Mm-hmm. Nope. Patent pending? R- right. Oh, wait. Yeah. Did I find one? Except the thing is, it's not fast. (laughs) Oh, uh, I suppose we should backtrack for a minute. Nico is a service dog, in case you didn't catch on to that. Yes. Nico is Heather's service dog. Yes. And for some perspective, a similar, they use similar type aircraft. Uh, I would say similar, maybe a little bit larger in size, but similar speed and type, because they use ATR-72s to fly the same route, just as airlines today. Typically flown by Logan Air, which is a very popular Scottish airline. And Sunbury is in the Shetland Islands, straight north of Aberdeen. So this flight is, it's pretty much a straight line. There's not much in between either one of those two other than water. And it's about 50 minutes. So it's pretty short flight, pretty short distance. And pretty much literally nothing other than water <laughs> between the two of them. That's pretty much it. What? Sorry. This. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? causes the automatic inflation of the life jackets on there's water like there it's it's kind of hard to explain but there are water type sensors and they have to be replaced very regularly these life vests mind you uh it's part of their regular maintenance procedures but usually there's water sensors the same thing that like activates a little water activated light but that's why they also provide manual means i.e blowing into the life vest or just pulling down which usually is not dissimilar to how they have cartridges of right. carbon dioxide gas sewn into them, which are then activated by pulling on a tag. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, I was just wondering, because I actually found a dog one, but it there are some... has a CO2, um, a CO2 cartridge. Right. There are but cartridges... I don't know if that would go through. TSA. Yeah. Right. Yeah, maybe not. There are cartridges that do have water sensors, but most of the time on most aircraft, you'll find they just have the red pull lever. Yeah. And all it does, is that's just a manual release for the cartridge because it makes more sense. And those do go bad, so they have to replace them all the time. Oh, this one also has an oral They expire. Too, so. That's why you can also blow into your vest. To, Correct. To as a just-in-case, as a backup. Yeah. But they still replace them very regularly because they have to. Which is my also my question, because it said that some of them did not inflate. Mm-hmm. Did it not have a thing to blow into otherwise? Then? Might not have. I feel like that that was probably part of the reason we have that now. That yes. amongst many probably other crashes in yes. the ocean, right? But There's still like weird variances in life vests these days, but for the most part, they've become pretty standardized. And it was needed because for a long time, there was a lot of inconvenience in these life vests that really, they just didn't operate the way they should for a very quick, you know, needs. Yes. Anyway... Now I'm going down a rabbit hole. Thanks, Heather. You're welcome. <laughs> well, let's take a break, and we'll come back and do the second half. We're back. Let's continue. So, some findings. They found that the failure to rotate was probably due to the re-engagement 
of the elevator gust lock, preventing movement of the elevators. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, no, really. Which is why they should have detents you can see. Yes. Just saying. Yes. Just saying. I found that the re-engagement of the gust locks probably occurred during the full and free control check after the gust lock lever had been moved forward by one of the pilots to an angular position short of the controls unlocked detent, but with the telescopic section of the lever fully retracted. So it was down, but not on a detent. They found that the incorrect angular position of the lever remained undetected since the safeguard against such positioning is the appearance of the fully extended telescopic section of the lever. So literally the only safeguard that they had at the time was just that the lever was up, not that it could be down and also not fully in. They found that the premature lowering of the telescopic section of the gust lock lever was made possible by insufficient interference between the gate stop strip and the gate plate in the control console, which is the thing you can't see. Which is where the... You like how I didn't use most of those terms through the whole thing yeah. so that I didn't confuse you all the way I was confused by reading it like five times in a yeah. row and not understanding what the hell was happening. Right. So the gate plate is where the detents are. Mm-hmm. And then the gate stop... Strip. Strip is the thing that sticks out of the lever that sits in the detents on the gate plate. Go look at the pictures on the website. It's actually a very simple system that many things in life use. You just... Don't call it that, because it's very complicated to call it that. They found that the lack of interference resulted from some non-standard repairs to these components. The repairs were probably carried out before the aircraft was returned to the British Register. So the aircraft was not with Dan Air or a British airline before Dan Air acquired it. So the repairs that were made were carried out before it was given to Dan Air and brought to the UK, so the repairs were subpar. Okay, but that being said, they also said it was a matter of wear and tear. Yes. Because this particular part doesn't have an inspection schedule. This wear and tear that was then outside of tolerance Correct. was never found. Right. They found that the components had originally been designed with insufficient interference to allow for reasonable in-service wear, bearing in mind that no wear limits were specified by the manufacturer. So, much like you said, like they didn't even have limits on how much it could wear. Yeah. Which is why it wasn't a regularly maintained part. Right. And again, like, I realize maybe they didn't realize it was going to wear, right? And so they were like, this shouldn't be an issue. But I don't know. It, it doesn't make me feel great about the engineering part. No warm and fuzzies there. Part. Right. And they found that the throttle interlock did not prevent takeoff power from being achieved with the elevator gust lock engaged because it was not designed to give protection against the gust lock lever being left in an intermediate position oh i have another question and i yeah. meant to ask this earlier and i thought yeah. we were going to go over it and we no, never did please so and you never said anything in the story so maybe you don't know anything about it but when they had to reject takeoff because there mm -hmm. had to be a point where they realized they had to stop mm -hmm. and they said you said I'm they glad you're bringing this up out. because this stuff is coming up soon so my question is did they ever use the thrust reversers did they ever try to use the brakes did they ever try to like pull out the slats and stuff just to right. get them to slow so, down this airplane does not have spoilers, and I'm not sure it even has a reverse thrust because these early type turboprops weren't built with it. They weren't built with the, the engineering needed to do reverse thrust. This one might have, but it may not have. I don't know for sure. What I can tell you is that they did apply braking. Okay. But we're getting to this. There's a very important reason why <laughs> this comes up, but... It wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered. They were past V1. If there's no way for you in any way to climb, 
you're going off the end of the runway. I, I didn't think they'd stop before the end of the runway, but I just wondered if there was more stopping power they could have applied so they didn't end up in the water. Based on the math that they have, they still would have ended up in the water. Right. There's well, nothing they could have done after Rotate when they figured out they suddenly can't move the elevators. That wouldn't have led to them ending up in the water. But if they don't have reverse thrust, I wonder if that would have helped. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here because we never talked about it while you were going through Possibly, the story. Yes, possibly. But there's a tolerance here. We'll talk about it in a minute. Okay. We'll talk about it in a minute because it comes up. We'll talk about it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we'll talk about it pretty much right now. They found that the pilots would probably have first become alerted to the locked elevator condition at or close to VR, the rotation speed. The subsequent delay of some five and a half seconds before an attempt was initiated to abandon the takeoff cannot be considered excessive because that, that was five and a half seconds. They were trying to figure out what the heck was going on right. just in order to abandon, not even to fix the problem. They found that in order to stop the aircraft within the overrun area, so this is the grassy area right at the end of the runway, but before the seawall, Using maximum retardation, that is the word they use, the takeoff would have had to have been abandoned within about two and a half seconds of rotation speed, which is nowhere near enough to figure out what's going on. Okay. So, and that's just to say stopping like at the seawall. That's it. Interesting. Okay. They found that for reasons which are unclear, the pilots did not fully implement the designated abandonment procedure. However, had they done so, the aircraft would have still landed in the sea at a comparatively high speed, although closer to the shore. Okay. Not quite 50 meters away, but they still would have ended up in the water. Well, it, it might have been less deep water. I don't know. It might have I, been less deadly. Yeah. Because it wouldn't have been at such a high speed. It wouldn't have done so much damage and caused the airplane to sink. Yeah. They found that the aircraft sustained substantial damage when it struck the edge of the perimeter road, which constituted a danger to aircraft and thus did not conform to the criteria recommended in though not demanded by CAP-168. We'll talk about it, but this is now before we have runway and safety areas. Not really, but kind of. But this is specific to the regulations of the UK. CAP-168 talks about what should be done at airports, not what has to be done at airports for runway and safety areas. And this airport didn't comply. So that's all I'm doing for findings. Did not. That's why they ended up in the water. And very oh, damaged. for end safety areas. Right, right, right. Yes. I was going to say something about the end safety area, but I figured you'd get there. Yeah, it didn't exist, basically. There was a very small patch of grass and then a 40-centimeter wall that took the landing gear off. Yeah. And caused the airplane to do a flip and then a seawall. Yeah. Yeah. That was... Not great. Not great. That is not good planning for instances where airplanes like this one might go past the end of the runway once yeah. in a while. Because <laughs> it turns out that happens every now and again. If they can't slow down, right. then... You're kind of screwed. I love the brevity of the last finding. Yes, I didn't even bring it up because it's not even worth it, but... The emergency services mounted a valuable rescue effort. Good job. You tried. They were there within two minutes, which is a pretty good job. You tried. But also the airplane sank, and it was 50 meters away. You tried. And the helicopter kept people from getting to shore, and yeah. Yeah, so... Cause! That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Cause, and moving on. Yes. The accident was caused by the locked condition of the elevators, which prevented the rotation of the aircraft into a flying attitude. It is likely that the elevator gust lock became re-engaged during the pilot's pre-takeoff check, and that this condition was not apparent to either pilot until the takeoff was so far advanced that a successful abandonment within the overrun area could not reasonably have been made. The re-engagement of the gust lock was made possible by the condition of the gust lock lever gate plate and gate stop strip. Okay. That's just a summary of all the same stuff we just talked about. Yep. Which is all that really ever is, but... Yep. 
but they used a lot more technical terms that I tried to avoid. Yes, and pointedly at the engineering of the aircraft, pretty much. Poo-poo on the engineers. Poo-poo. Poo-poo. I just saw it. Accident investigation branch was under the Department of Trade. Weird. But okay. Sorry, that was at the very end of the report. Anyways, doesn't make much sense, but sure. Now for some recommendations. Please tell me that they recommend all the stuff that needs to be recommended. They recommend that serious consideration be given to the redesign of the gust lock system so as to ensure that positive operation of the gust locks is achieved at all times and that the possibility of the crew being misled as to the position of any lock is eliminated. That Thank you. That is the very first recommendation. Thank you. <laughs> That's all I needed. We can go home now. Yes, we can go I home now. I just needed people to be like, you need to actually re-engineer this so that they can make sure that it's in a detent. Yeah. Because otherwise you can't see it. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, it's pretty much pointless. They recommend that CVRs be fitted to all public transport category aircraft which exceed 11,400 kilograms, maximum, <clears throat> maximum authorized weight, i.e. this airplane. Yeah, uh, make sure that there's enough. Data. Data? One, yes, it would be great. Shocked. Shocked, I say. Shocked. You tell me that this is what you want? What? Yeah. Oh, don't let them even talk about cockpit image recorders. That doesn't come around for another, like, half... Half a century. Right. <laughs> I'm just going to abbreviate this one because it wasn't really worth bringing up in full, but they talked about that in exercises specifically related to aircraft emergencies and accidents that they should consider in airport emergency plans where they're near a seawall, the event that an airplane may end up in the water. Yeah. When they put together those plans. Yeah. Because they might have to rescue people. In the water? In the water. Turns was that out. not considered? I mean, the, the rescue effort was still pretty good, but I think it's like, maybe don't push them down with the downwash of the helicopter. <laughs> yeah. Just maybe. Things to consider. Anyways. They recommend that the CAA reconsider the possibility of the provision of some form of retardation device in or beyond overrun areas to critical aerodromes, i.e. what eventually would become EMAS. EMAS. <laughs> EMAS. And just EMAS, EMAS. runway and safety areas, period. That yeah, just, that, I mean, you can have a, a runway and safety area that doesn't have EMAS in it, as long as it has enough space for the airplane to stop. Right, and isn't a brick wall. Yes, <laughs> or, or a gas station, or a fuel plant. Things should, that just don't make sense. We should really stop putting I just flammable things at the ends of runways. <laughs> you know, it shocks me the amount of times we go over this, and I'm like, you would think they would go, you know... This isn't a great idea. What if a plane, like, goes off the end of the runway? All I picture is a little chibi gas station saying, I was here first! <laughs> yes. Well, also, it's like, this area is zoned for it, so that's where I am now with this gas station, and I'm making money. And then an airplane ends up in your gas station. And then it explodes, and yes. it kills a bunch of people. And it's bad. And no one's having a fun time. No. Nobody's having a fun And then time. everyone goes, why the hell is there a gas station at the end of the runway? I thought it was interesting in these recommendations they brought up in brief licensing of airports. Yes, I saw that. This airport was not licensed. Nor was it required to be. What but also, that mean? but also, right, but also like. What does that mean? What does that mean? If you have an airport, usually you just register it. You don't license it. You don't license an airport. Well, maybe you do in the UK. You no, know. you don't. <laughs> it turns Maybe out back then you did. It turns out like that was like that, that was their form of like a register, basically. But at the same time, this airport wasn't licensed, nor was it required to be. And they were basically saying that maybe they should, so that they have to follow regulations that are required of license. Or you could just require any airport to follow the rules as an airport, the regulations as an airport. That just to me just seems I don't know. 
Have an airport that's an airport that operates as a proper airport? Yes. What? Who? Follows the regulations of How? airports. Huh? Why? I know. Anyways. You ask too much. They recommend that demonstrations of the method of donning and of the operation of life jackets be required and individual safety leaflets be provided on all public transport flights, which take off or land directly over water. Really? That's a thing. People need to know how to use the safety equipment? Safety cards. And how to get to it? Safety cards. What? And demonstrations. Huh? Again, there's a reason crazy. for everything in aviation. It's and crazy. I know that it seems redundant when they're doing it, but they're actually doing it because when they don't do it... It's also not the same on every airplane. Please read your safety information card. Thank you. Right. By not having the safety card there and not doing the demonstration, I understand that it seems redundant and people ignore it anyways, but at the same time, if it wasn't there, we'd probably be in a worse situation because we were at one time in history. Because oh. for some reason, when we didn't do these things, people just couldn't figure it out. Uh, <laughs> it's like one of those things where like, you think it's common sense, but really it's not. It's not, especially when you don't design life jackets with some common sense things. Well, and if you have people that are on board an airplane and, you know, they haven't really been on a lot of flights before. Yes. They exactly. might not understand. Sure. I The amount of people, sorry, it's a slight tangent, but the amount of people I see when we get on planes that ignore the safety mm-hmm. stuff. And I hey. watch it. I try to make sure I watch it every time. We mm-hmm. do fall asleep, though. I, it's occasionally I'll fall asleep because I'm like, I already saw this once today. <laughs> yes. Usually on a day trip. Is. Yes. Yeah, but... Especially when we're flying back on the exact same airplane. I try to make sure... <laughs> yes. I try to make sure that I understand, like, that I read the information card before I go to sleep. I try to make sure I know where all the exits are. Know which exits can be used in a water landing because the answer changes. Sometimes there is no water landing exit because the plane's not... Going over See, water. I am just such a nerd for this stuff and for aviation Shut safety up. that, like, walking onto an airplane, I'm like staring at the doors, like, that's cool. I know how that works now. <laughs> or I already knew. Know where the rafts are stored, know where mm-hmm. the escape rope is stored, know where the child life vests are stored, either because you have a child or there are children near you or you mm-hmm. have a service dog, and that's apparently hey, all we can try to. Do. Yes. You have access to planes. Uh-huh. Can we go on a plane and see where all the stuff is at? That's a hard thing to do. But because of T- Customs and Border Custom- Protection. I know. Yeah. And TSA, TSA and all those things. So yes. There's many a reason why that's not necessarily possible. But we could go to a museum and do that for sure. We should go to the Museum of Flight for that. We should do that. We need to do that. We we do that like every time we go to Seattle. Hey Boeing Museum of Flight, can you let us in for free again? Thank you. It's too much to ask. They did it last time. It was very nice. We need to meet with them still. Yeah. I would love to do that. It's very, very nice. So, anyways, wait, well, I guess since we're on the tangent, let me ask you, since you've both been on 737s and A320s, what's the difference between the overwing exits? Because they both have overwing exits. One of them, you have to yeet it out of the airplane. Or you know which one? Airbus. No. Boeing. Oh. Does the other one just slide up? It just... Oh, it pulls out? Mm-hmm. It's like a Lamborghini. Mm-hmm. I thought it was Boeing that opened up an Airbus you had to yeet out. I'm fairly certain you have to yeet out the Airbus ones. Do you know what the other difference is? What? The lever. Which is a very big difference, actually, and it's very important that you understand that. I mean, difference. yeah, but they try to make that one this fairly why, obvious. This is why you should definitely look at the safety cards, because, yes, they try to make it fairly obvious on no, the door, but I you No, I know for a freaking fact that Airbus, you have to yeet it out. Look up an information card, for sake. I don't know. I'm right. Do you know how much I... I read it when I get on the plane so I know what to do in case someone's an accident. <laughs> Two. I the reason why... The people that are sitting in the exit row are actually inept and can't do their job. And the thing is, is I don't love either version, no matter what, how you have to throw one out or how one just swings open, because either way, the door is small, like the opening is small, 
to get out, which is a problem, first of all. Second of all, the one that... Yes, Airbus, you have to eat it. I was right. Suck it. Still, anyways, point being, that door being open on the 737, like, you have to crawl underneath that door when you get out, too. Like, you will smack your head on that thing so hard when you're crawling out of that little tiny door trying to then slide down, which I don't love. And I also don't love the Yeedy method because the Yeedy method is heavy. It's 35 pounds. Yes, which is heavy for some people. And to have to yeet that out a tiny door that it also just barely fits in. This is why you call me over and I go move out of the way. I grab the door and I yeet. Pull yeet! Because I can do that. In most cases (laughs) where they do overwing exits like that, instead of yeeting it out, they actually will just set it on the the row of seats. No, do not do that. Don't do that. Actually, some airlines tell you to. Don't do that if your safety information card doesn't tell you to do that. If it tells you to yeet it, yeet it. Some airlines tell you to do it. If it tells you to yeet it, yeet it. Well, here's the problem. So, okay. They kind of assume you're going to force yourself into a situation where if you're trying to yeet it out and it gets stuck, now you've created a bigger problem. Okay, but. Okay, here's. It fits. Here's my problem. Barely. It shows you how to yeet it so it... Yeah, you turn it on its side and you throw it out, assuming you're not already rushed by a bunch of people. You're sitting right there. Just okay, yeet it. but here's the thing. Instead of people putting it on the seats, because mm-hmm. potentially there's still people in those seats, mm-hmm. people will put it on the floor by the seats. Which is yes. the worst problem. Which also, is worse. Yes. Also, they don't say this in the safety information card, but don't yeet it forward. Because if the engine's still running... Well, yeah. If the engine's still running, you shouldn't go out onto the wing. Usually. Sometimes you don't have a choice. If you go out the back, you're fine, which is what you're supposed to do. Also, those are the exits that you need to be most conscious of not using in an emergency. Because those are the ones where fire happens, usually. Which ones? The overwing exits. Oh, because yeah. they're over the fuel <laughs> tank outside. and the engine. Yeah, look outside before you... It says in the in the information card, I think in every information card, it's like, look outside for danger first <laughs> before you open it. Okay, so I'm, I'm kind of proud. You really should, like memorize your safety information cards if you are sitting in the exit row or directly adjacent to the exit row, which is why I know you had to gate the door. Right. And the other thing to be conscious of, too, is make sure that you know, like, I always think about this, too. Am I closer to the back or to the front? Because because I know those overwing exits are the least likely to be used, depending on the type of accident. And in this day and age, the most common type of accident or incident that happens cannot allow you to use the overwing exits. You need to know if you're going out the back or the front, which one's Some closer. Some people will try to bomb rush. Also, be aware, and we've covered accidents like this before, people will try to bomb rush one side or the other. There's mm-hmm. there's four doors, right. front and back. At least. Usually. I don't, smaller aircraft are different, but usually like 737s and A320s yep, and stuff. Yeah, two at the front, there's two at the rear. Two the front, two in the rear, right? You have four exits. Right. Now, depending on if there's fires somewhere or whatever, they might tell you you can't use an exit. Right. But you should also be aware, like, don't bomb rush a door. Isn't it bomb rush? Bomb rush? Bomb sure. rush? Whatever. Because you think that's the only way to get out. Right. Because sometimes people aren't using the other exits. Right. <laughs> and you're like, Go to the other one. Go. Go. What right. are you doing? Pay attention. <laughs> and don't take your with you. Please. Oh God. Unless it's your very loved cross-stitch that you've been working on. For You're seconds. usually holding it, though. I know. <laughs> if it's, like, Which, my backpack underneath the seat, I'll probably take it with me. Maybe. I don't, again, I don't care enough about that stuff. I've got my phones in my pocket. i got my wallet in my pocket. I'm out. See, but my phone doesn't have pockets. The I'm eating myself way, out. The only way I would take it with me is if it has my medication in it. Yeah. And depending bad. depending on the situation. Right. If it's like, that I it's like, if we are going to die if you don't get out, like, right the 
now. Yeah. Then obviously I'll I'll get with that later. But also (laughs) don't put your medication in your carry on bag. Right. Put it in your personal bag. Yeah. Most instances I am like sorry, whatever's in my bag is gonna be freaking toast. Anyways. That's all I have. That's why I allowed us to do a little bit of tangenting because I don't have anything else of note. Do we have any listener questions? We do. We have two. (laughs) Yes. Um, I will. Okay. So I will preface one of them that I think we actually already talked about, but maybe not. That's Um, okay. I actually can can talk about it again on my tablet. We are a bit repetitive sometimes. It's about the Mount. Oh, no, there's only one. Oh, my. There's only one we have to cover. We did Did the other one. Did we do the other one? So, okay. I'm going to. I'm gonna read it. I can't. I ha- because I have my tablet today. I can actually like look at it. Can I don't want to talk about this. Uh, no, hold on. I'm gonna answer it because I know you're very upset about it. So I can also on. help, but I need to hear the question. But so, and we actually got a comment about this on our might have been Instagram. the same person. It is the same person. So Leo, hi. Not my brother. Hello. He's he's asking about the Mount Erebus crash, uh-huh. New Zealand flight nine zero one, and mm-hmm. so he says an Air New Zealand. Flight 901, mm-hmm. you seemed to base the episode based on the official report, which is what we always do with every episode, by the yes. way. Yes. Known as the Chippendale Report, and really went mm-hmm. hard on the pilots. Like, that report went hard on the pilots. Mm-hmm. However, the Mohan Inquiry, pronounced Mon. Yes, Mon, Mon, Mon Inquiry. inquiry. Yep. Was much more detailed, and it found lots of flaws in the report and cleared the pilots, as the blame was based on regulations that were broken with the approval of Air New Zealand. The captain was told to have been plotting the route the night before, which was changed or corrected without him knowing. The captain was planning based on the incorrect route that was used for many flights. This route seemed sensible as it was over McArudo? MacRudo? McMurdo. McMurdo. That sound. You guys know what a sound is, right? It's like mm-hmm. a, it's a, a body of water. Allowing for a low descent. However, the correct route went right over Erebus. When I listened to the episode, I was extremely disappointed that the Mon Inquiry wasn't even used in research. The pilot's reputation being dragged through the mud in the report, only to be found out by Air New Zealand tried throwing them under the bus, is the entire reason why this is still a sore spot with the Air New Zealand public. The government and the airline themselves apologized. So here's the thing. We did that episode. This was in our first year of doing research for the podcast. We had, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm not the one who did the research for this, but I'm sure Christy and Nick will chime in and and say this is correct. We had no idea that there was another inquiry. I didn't. And unless, I mean, I guess we could have, unless it's on the Wikipedia page. and It probably is. Probably is. But even then, the bigger problem is we still got off the official report issued on the accident because, unfortunately, that's the factual information. And yes, if they found that there was problems with that report, they need to take that up with their own frigging government. Because governments have issued amended reports before. Yes, and they should have in those instances. So, all that to say, too, I appreciate you bringing that up. And while I would love to be able to redo that, I don't. Because that... If it were any other report, I would put out an amended episode. But that episode honestly gave me so much heartache. While I understand you might be frustrated with how we drag the crew, listen to it carefully because what we really find is the exact same frustration that everybody else does with that, which is how it was flight planned because 
having to change your form of navigation to a form of navigation nobody ever has to do anymore, by the way, is moronic, to say the least. It doesn't help anyone. So here's the thing. The Mohan... So I don't even blame the crew for that. The Mon report you're talking about is actually in a book. So we wouldn't have had access to it unless we bought the book and unless we actually did like figure out that that's what that was because otherwise we wouldn't have any idea that there was any other yeah because i'm looking okay and i'm gonna be honest with you i'm looking at the wikipedia page because 90 percent of the time when we cover accidents like this and they have a huge amount of research and the wikipedia page will look at it and i found it but it's in a it's in a book and so because it's in a book and because of the way we do our notes and stuff we wouldn't have had time to even look we at do that. our notes in like four to six hours before the podcast yeah We're mm-hmm. full-time jobs guys and I'm not I, I'm not dragging you. Like thank no. you for bringing that up. Again, I'm And it's just, a good point to like say out loud on the podcast. Like this yeah, is you're right. That you're exists. probably right that it does exist and it probably should have been used, but to be perfectly honest with you, from what I understood from Christy and Nick, the research for this episode was hard enough to begin with because of the navigational issues that And I would really love to never discuss this crash again. <laughs> that This it, one was a pain. It was a pain. It was a I it is pain. it is the episode i'm least proud of my research my analysis portion i hated every minute of it and i would really love to never touch it again yeah so in the most respectful and affectionate of ways please know having to understand this these two different forms of navigation and how to use them that's why it was so painful to do this episode and do i was screaming about it crying screaming like five minutes before we started recording Mm -hmm. like on the verge of a panic attack kind of frustrated like completely frustrated aside you guys are allowed to not do something if you think you can't find yeah. the adequate research yep. based on your time. And That's the truth. Yeah. So Especially if it's going to stress you the f- out. Yeah. That whole thing. Yeah. Thinking about it, I'm sweating and not just because this room is really hot. It, <laughs> Although this room is really hot. <sighs> if I could erase one episode from our history, it's that one. I understand. So... Anyway, trying to find this book. So I really appreciate your feedback. Thank you so much for it. And thank you for bringing it up so that others know that this exists and, and it's a thing. If any of our listeners are so inclined to go into that, you are more than welcome. Obviously, we're not going to stop you. But I really don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, so the, uh, the uh, Mon report, the book that he put out by Peter Mon, is what I'm assuming you, you're having us look at, mm-hmm. came out in 1985. And the the basis of the book says they believe that the standard flight track had been changed without the knowledge of the crew. As things turned out, the theory proved to be correct. So, yeah, you're probably right. Like, it probably was Air New Zealand's fault. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Like, sorry. <laughs> we yeah. didn't, there was no way for us to know that there was another, correct. like, complete other well, I mean, portion of research. It's not that there's no way for us to know, but we just did not have the time to invest in that. No, I don't. I really don't think that we knew that this was even a thing, though. No. Like, cause, because we didn't. The, and the resources. Where it is in the resources, it, I would never have looked at right. it twice. Well, and the way that it's always covered is the same way that we covered it, quite frankly, because, again, the factual report put out by the government is usually what we have to rely on. So it's the information anyway, they had. That I, that wasn't really a question, but that's just to. But thank you for the feedback. Give yes, you the feedback. Much thank appreciated, you. and I, much appreciated for you interacting with us too. And so, that. if you want to learn more about that, the book is by. If you look in the the Wikipedia page for Air New Zealand Flight Nine Hundred One, you'll find it. But it's called Verdict on Erebus. 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 Whatever. Yes, that. And the ISBN's in there, and you can search for the book if you want to read it on your own. But I don't. Thank, thank you. you. There you go. All right. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. 
We do appreciate it. Thanks, Heather, for being here. Of course. I love having you here. (laughs) We hope you guys enjoyed listening. Again, if you have recommendations, like Helen, there have been a few. And Heather. Yes. And Heather. You can email those to us. We have had people email them to us, and we haven't put them in the list yet. We're sorry. We're getting to it. I've starred them so we can look back at them and put them in the list. Because I forget about it, and I was like, oh, I should do that, and then I forget about it. So, that, yeah, there you go. I get it. Thank you so much for listening. Check out the Patreon, post episodes, and stuffy stuffs. Check out the newsletter and the merch store. Yeah. Get yourself some merch. And we hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely Paige. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.